Milko Corporation, world's largest radio manufacturer, presents your Radio Hall of Fame. From the beautiful Earl Carroll Theater Restaurant in Hollywood, today and every Sunday for one full hour, the stars made great by your recognition of their achievements are brought to you by Philco Corporation. Make us today of radar and electronic equipment to help win the war. Make us tomorrow of products for good living in a world at peace. The name of our master of ceremonies today is reason enough for him being in your radio hall of fame. He's a talented, lovable guy. The Bob Hope of song, who can currently be seen in the Paramount picture... Here come the waves. Bing Crosby. Thank you. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. What fun it is to ride in a one-horse open At 3 p.m. Pacific time on Christmas Eve, 1944, the now independently owned Blue Network, who'd soon officially change their name to the American Broadcasting Company, aired a Christmas spectacular on the Philco Radio Hall of Fame from their Hollywood affiliate, KECA. Christmas 1944 was subdued, but for the first time, Americans could feel the end of the war victoriously approaching. Orson Welles appeared with Bing Crosby. bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. What fun it is to ride in a one-horse open. Oh, we have a lot of fun. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. What fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Thank you, Jimmy Wellington, for the wonderful, eloquent introduction you gave me. You know, I was afraid for a moment that you weren't going to leave me enough adjectives to adequately introduce, or if you rather I didn't split an infinitive, to introduce adequately the one and only Orson Welles. Thank you. Thank you. You know, in introducing candidates for your Radio Hall of Fame, it's customary to indulge in hyperbole and to stretch the English language in an effort to find new expressions which will do justice to their personal magnificence and their rare talent. However, in the case of this next member, he's not a candidate because he was installed earlier this year, I'm not going to do it. After all, when you've said that he's probably the most versatile person in show business, a remarkable actor, director, producer, and writer, what can you say that just isn't so much parsley, really? I don't know... Except that maybe to add that right now, recordings of him reading the entire Bible are being made. and will eventually be played on many stations throughout the country. It'll be well worth listening to because he's good. I don't know what else I can say about him, so I won't. Orson Welles, it's... Welcome to the Hall of Fame, Orson, and happy Yuletide. Thanks, Bing, and Merry Christmas to you, too. And Orson, I do mean you. Thank I you do, so yes. much. Why don't you come up to our shack for Christmas Eve, Orson? Just the family will be home. No, thanks, Bing. It'll be too crowded. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a jolly program arranged. Really, we have. We're having a preview of the new picture I just made with Lamour and Hope. It's called The Road to Utopia. Do you mean to say that you allow your children to see Bob Hope in a movie? 
Well, I'm hoping it'll have the same effect on them as a crime doesn't pay short, maybe. <laughs> Tell me, uh, what is this uh, road to Utopia? Oh, it's just two guys and a gal in the frozen north. Too much plot. <laughs> well, Thank you for laughing. I like it. Yeah, I enjoy it. In the picture, Hope and I are two grizzled old prospectors. Lamore is in the picture. I know what Hope is prospecting for. <laughs> and the kid hasn't got the pan for it either. What? <laughs> what I can't understand is, this? is how come you got Dorothy Lamore way up in the north where she'll have to wear big fur coats? Oh, no, no. Dorothy walks around in a sarong. Please, Crosby, you are straining my credulity. A sarong in the frozen north? But certainement. When Ski knows Caesar, he generates enough heat to warm a 12-room apartment. <laughs> some lover, some lover, that boy. Oh, hopes, some lover. You know, most fellas, before they start getting romantic, have to wait till the moon is high. What about Bob? He has to wait till the girl is high. <laughs> You're so right. You're so right. Really, yes, but I am. Bobsy is an impetuous lover. You know, in one scene, Orson, he squeezed Dorothy Lamour so hard, he knocked three of her vertebrae out of place. Well, that must have been awful for Dot. Oh, no. I got her into a clinch, snapped them right back in there. <laughs> Using the shark's medical course, method. I no, give her half sure. Well, how do you explain that Bob Hope thing? Well, Orson, Bob has led a very sheltered youth. Oh, yeah. You know, he was 36 years old before he was told about the birds and the bees. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that explains it. What's yeah. this? Well, I, I just saw him on the corner of Hollywood and Vine flapping his arms and saying, I want honey, I want honey. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no matter what you say about him, Bengal, you have to admit that Bob Hope is a great guy. Yes, yes. and he's a very handsome. Yes, he's a great actor, too. Yes, and he's talented. And very generous, yeah. too. Yes, sir. We may as well get in all our lies before the new year. <laughs> Actually, the spirit of friendship and forgiveness should prevail, and Orson... There's something that really... I've seen the Christmas mood, and I heard you read it once. Something from the Bible. I wonder if you'd read it for us now. I'm referring to the story of the nativity as told by St. Luke in the Bible, according to St. James. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. It was fitting that Wells narrated the happy prince with a week-old princess at home. He would make no radio appearances until the spring. That was a beautiful reading of one of the most beautiful stories ever told. Tonight and tomorrow in churches throughout the world we call civilized, there'll be prayer and song. Some churches will be kind of improvised, with no walls, with their only arch. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, today in pursuance of my constitutional duty, I sent to the Congress a message on the State of the Union. And this evening I am taking the opportunity to repeat to you some parts of that message. This war must be waged, it is being waged, with the greatest and most persistent intensity. Everything we are, everything we have is at stake. Everything we are and have will be given. We have no question of the ultimate victory. We have no question of the cost. Our losses will be heavy. But we and our allies will go on fighting together to ultimate total victory. We have seen a year marked on the whole by substantial progress toward victory, even though the year ended with a setback for our arms, when the Germans launched a ferocious counterattack into Luxembourg and Belgium with the obvious objectives of cutting our line in the center. Our men have fought with indescribable and unforgettable gallantry under most difficult conditions. The high tide of this German attack was reached two days after Christmas. Since then, we have reassumed the offensive. We have rescued the isolated garrison at Bastogne and forced the German withdrawal along most of the line of the salient. Oh, yes. For great days. Great I had day. intended to bring a, a little magical illusion with me, and I put it in the wrong jacket. No magic tonight? So, no magic tonight, and I also told myself that I would do what Mrs. Temple used to tell Shirley before every take, and I find I'm not doing it. Do you know what she used to say? No. This is really true. Just as they put that slate on, you know, take number four, whatever right. it is, littlest rubble. She'd say, sparkle, Shirley. Mm. Sparkle. sparkle, Shirley. Mm. So that's what I told myself behind the curtain. Sparkle, Orson. <laughs> Good evening. This is Orson Welles, inviting you to listen now to The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. 
on Cresta Blanca's This Is My Best. This is my best. America's greatest stars in the world's best story. Presented each week by Shenley's Cresta Blanca Wine. Wine of friendly nature. Pride of the Vintner's Art. This is my best debuted over CBS Airwaves on Tuesday, September 5th, 1944. Originally, it was a book of the month club. Producer Homer Thicket chose works from modern authors to be adapted for Hollywood radio stars. Six months later, Orson Welles abruptly took over. He initiated a shift to classics, debuting with Heart of Darkness on March 13, 1945. Orson Welles again. I can't tell you how truly pleased and proud I am to join the Cresta Blanca program. This is my best, and I'm glad, too, to start off with an old favorite, a show The Mercury Brought You First, a story we came to Hollywood to make a movie of. We never did. Maybe someday we will. But I think it's particularly well-suited to radio. Here it is. One of the best-regarded and most typical of the works of Joseph Conrad. The Heart of Darkness could be described as a deliberate masterpiece or a downright incantation. Almost we are persuaded that there is something after all, something essential, waiting for all of us in the dark areas of the world, aboriginally loathsome, immeasurable, and certainly nameless. This also has been one of the dark places of the earth. Eight bells. Guess I'd better call all hands. No hurry, mister. We can't put the ship anyway till the tide turns. Be nice to see New York again. What's that you say, Marlowe, about the dark places? Hmm? Oh, I was thinking of very old times. When our fathers first came here 400 years ago the other day. Imagine the feelings of a skipper of a fine frigate or a bark. A civilized man, 400 years ago, hove two off the battery here, the very end of the world. He'd land in a swamp, march through the woods, and in some inland post feel the savagery, the utter savagery that stirs in the forests, in the jungles, in the hearts of wild men. Has a fascination, too, that goes to work upon him. The abomination, you know. There's a man I knew once. I'd like to tell you about him. About the girl, too. Now you're getting somewhere. Uh, it's his story. Well, let's hear it, man. To understand everything, you ought to know how I got out there. How I went up that river into the dark country. Where I met him. It was before the war. I was just loafing around one of the big port towns looking for a ship when I saw that map in a shop window. I was standing there looking at it. I noticed a girl's face reflected in the glass. It's like a snake, isn't it? I beg your pardon? The river. Oh, the river. On the map? Yes. The way it coils inland there from the coast. Yeah, it does look like a snake, doesn't it? And that delta there at the mouth of the river, it's like a bird. As if the snake had hypnotized a silly little bird. Please, I hope you don't think I spoke to you because... Oh, no. Well, you see, I, I come here often to look... No, nah, don't start apologizing. That'll spoil everything. Well, the truth is that I have a personal interest in that country shown there on the map. I've never been there, nearly everywhere else, but... Feeling all right? It's just a little cold. 
It always is here in the early morning. Well, the sun's shining brightly at the end of the street. Then. I know. I often sit there watching the ships in the harbor. Well, let's go watch them together, shall we? We walked in silence, this strange girl and I, until something, the sight of the harbor, perhaps the sea reaches stretching out to the distant places of the earth, started her talking. It has been more than a year now since I've heard from him, but I know he's alive. The company was satisfied as long as he went on sending Ivory back to the coast. But now they say the Ivory has stopped coming. Well, I should think they'd send an expedition to see what's happened to your friend. That's unexplored country. The company owns a good steamboat, I believe, but needs an expert navigator. They have not found the man who was willing to try it. Well, I've never been a freshwater sailor, but I'm looking for a ship. Would you... Well... Go on to the company office. <laughs> Look here, what are you talking me into? Don't you see? It's his work. His work that's so important. Well, I don't mean to be rude, but bamboozling a bunch of savages for a few elephant tusks. <laughs> that can't be so important. But Eric has a plan, you see. The dark country is the beginning only. His plan will change the world. You really believe that, don't you? What's the name of this remarkable fiancé of yours? Quartz. Eric. But what was it, this plan of his? Well, I don't pretend to have understood it later on when I met him. Well, we'll come to that part of the story. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. The president died of a cerebral hemorrhage. All we know so far is that the president died at Warm Springs in Georgia. On April 12, 1945, at Warm Springs, Georgia, President Franklin D. Roosevelt was sitting for a watercolor commission. He suddenly complained of a terrible headache, then slumped forward into his chair unconscious. He was carried into his bedroom. The president's attending cardiologist rushed to the scene. His diagnosis was a massive cerebral hemorrhage. The president died at 3.55 p.m. He was 63. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Fulton Lewis, Jr., speaking from the Mutual Studios in New York City. This nation has suffered this day a staggering loss. At this moment, at Warm Springs, Georgia, President Franklin D. Roosevelt lies with the problems of the nation finally lifted from his shoulders, stricken late this afternoon with cerebral hemorrhage. He passed away before his physicians could be of any assistance if assistance in such a case is possible at all. Vice President Harry Truman, who from here on will be President Truman, went immediately to the White House. A special cabinet meeting was called, and we should know more about what is going to happen in Washington as the evening wears on. But Franklin D. Roosevelt, the first president to be elected for four terms in the White House, has passed away, and that is the overshadowing of all news events that have happened or can happen for quite a while. 
Fiorello LaGuardia, New York City's mayor, offered remarks on his WNYC radio program that evening. My fellow New Yorkers, the one dominant thought in our minds is that shared by 130 million Americans in our country. And hundreds of millions of men and women throughout the world. The greatest casualty of the entire world is now suffered by all the people of the world. The shock is so great that under ordinary conditions it would be exceedingly difficult to absorb. But we must carry on because of him whose death the entire world mourns. On the morning of April 13th, Roosevelt's body was placed in a flag-draped coffin and loaded onto the presidential train. Along the route to Washington, thousands flocked to the tracks to pay their respects. Here are the great, and here too are the many like you and I. He was the leader for us all. An official delegation headed by President Harry S. Truman is here. The train has just pulled in, and the special honorary guard the bearers representing two non-commissioned officers from each of the services, Army, Navy, Coast Guard, and Marine Corps, have lifted the late President Roosevelt from the train and onto a caisson, which is pulled by six white horses, and very shortly we expect that the caisson will start its solemn, sorrowful procession through Washington. The Army Air Forces Band is playing music. Perhaps you can hear it in the background. Here, as well as the official representation, which involves virtually every high official in the government and from the embassies, are the Roosevelts, the Bottingers, the Elliot Roosevelts, Mrs. John Roosevelt and Mrs. Franklin Roosevelt. John and Franklin, on duty for their country, were unable to be here. On the way up from Warm Springs in that long, slow trip, I'm told that a plane circled overhead virtually all the way. Here also, I can see every member of the cabinet, James Burns, the Supreme Court, Senators White and Allender, we're going to try to walk out nearer the nearer the caissons and therefore nearer the 
Army Air Forces band. Perhaps you can hear some of the music that they're playing. They're quite a ways in the distance. Crowds are lining Constitution Avenue from here at the trackside to the White House where this procession ends. After a White House funeral on April 14th, the president went by train to his Springwood estate in Hyde Park, New York. He was buried the next day. That same day, April 15th, 1945, Edward R. Murrow delivered his report from Buchenwald that forever changed society. Permit me to tell you what you would have seen and heard had you been with me on Thursday. It will not be pleasant listening. If you're at lunch, or if you have no appetite to hear what Germans have done, now is a good time to switch off the radio. For I propose to tell you of Buchenwald. It is on a small hill about four miles outside Weimar. And it was one of the largest concentration camps in Germany. And it was built to last. As we approached it, we saw about a hundred men in civilian clothes with rifles advancing in open order across the field. There were a few shots. We stopped to inquire. We're told that some of the prisoners had a couple of SS men cornered in there. We drove on, reached the main gate. The prisoners crowded up behind the wire. We entered. And now let me tell this in the first person. For I was the least important person there, as you shall hear. There surged around me an evil smelling horde. Men and boys reached out to touch me. They were in rags, in the remnants of uniforms. Death had already marked many of them, but they were smiling with their eyes. Two days later, Orson Welles took to the air on This Is My Best with an episode entitled, I Will Not Go Back. Now listen to This Is My Best. Presented each week by Shenley's Cresta Blanca Wine. Wine of friendly nature, pride of the vintner's art, symbol of hospitality, compliment to honored guest, a wine to serve proudly, saying, this is my best. This is Cresta Blanca. C-R-E-S-T-A? B-L-A-N-C-A. Cresta Blanca. Cresta Blanca. Tonight, Cresta Blanca Wine, sponsor of This Is My Best, departs from its usual series of dramatic presentation of the world's great stories to bring you this special broadcast in keeping with the events of the times. Written by Milton Geiger and titled, I Will Not Go Back. And now, our producer. This is Orson Welles. Last week, an American president fell in the midst of battle. This radio program is dedicated to the American future he so greatly served and to the new president who has taken over that high service. Six weeks before he died, Mr. Roosevelt wrote me these words. April will be a critical month in the history of human freedom. It will see the meeting in San Francisco of a great conference of the United Nations the nations united in this war against tyranny and militarism. At that conference, 
the peoples of the world will decide through their representatives and in response to their will whether or not the best hope for peace the world has ever had will be realized. Discussions by the people of this country and by the peoples of the freedom-loving world of the proposals which will be considered at San Francisco are necessary, are indeed essential as the purpose of the people to make peace and to keep peace is to be expressed in action. I've quoted in part from Mr. Roosevelt's last letter to me. Tonight's broadcast is one of those discussions he felt we ought to have. It's a broad and general discussion without technicalities or politics. It deals with somebody called man, with his age-long preparation for April 25th, 1945, with his high task, which is the keeping of peace on earth, in justice and in decency, for all time. Over the concrete and the steel, astride the mills and factories, the temples and the farms, the thunderous commerce of the cities, the oceans and the rivers to the oceans, over the hills, the mountains and the valleys of earth, over the fervent hush of the hopeful peoples, watches a spirit. I will not go back. Out of the mists of time, out of the ancient yesterday, the spirit came. Out of the mists of time, out of the ooze and slime, out of the dreadful dawning, out of the dim, wet morning of the earth, I came, and I will not go back. Now the earth was without Wells' tenure at the helm of This Is My Best was stormy and brief. He argued with the network and sponsors agency. They felt he hijacked the show and undermined the weekly budget. Untenanted. He was fired on April 24th, and there was the restless charged with compromising the show for his personal agenda. He had scheduled the play, Don't Catch Me, which he had been trying to develop into a film for he and Rita Hayworth. Time stood speechless among the blank and silent days. Wells' last appearance was in a play entitled, Anything Can Happen. There was eternity, and there was a plan, and reason. There was God. Victory in Europe was achieved on May 7th.
Now we're breaking into our programs for the second time tonight, this time with some splendid news from Moscow. Berlin has fallen. Marshal Stalin has just announced the complete capture of the capital of Germany, the center of German imperialism, and the cradle of German aggression. Berlin garrison laid down their arms this afternoon. More than 70,000 prisoners have been rounded up so far today. That it would probably be with us. We've been kept a number of times since then without getting it, but now it is here. The president announced at 7 p.m. today the unconditional and unqualified surrender of the Japanese. General Douglas MacArthur takes over as the Allied Supreme Commander and the man who will tell Emperor Hirohito just how to run Japan. Orson Welles ended the war the same way he began it, collaborating with Norman Corwin. On July 24th, he appeared on Columbia Presents Corwin in New York, a tapestry of radio. Orson Welles in Norman Corwin's New York, a tapestry for radio. Tonight, in the fourth of a limited series of eight broadcasts for CBS, Norman Corwin is privileged to bring you Orson Welles as narrator of one of the most widely requested of all Corwin's programs, New York, a tapestry for radio. The original musical score is by Frederick Steiner, and the orchestra is conducted by Lud Gluskin. Orson Welles in New York. Time, on the four-faced paramount clock, says in quadruplicate that it is ten o'clock. And so good evening to you, Queen of the Hemisphere. Four times good evening. And by this time tomorrow, may the enemies of all free men's cities be more desperate and damned than ever. End of salutation. <laughs> Let us acknowledge that you have a handsome profile, city of New York, and get that over with. Long ago, you were voted the city most likely to succeed. And tonight, the 12th generation of Americans salutes you with special reference to the populace, which takes you for its lawful address. The Manhattanese, Brooklynese, Astorians, Jamaicans, Bronxites, who think the rest of the world is all right to visit, but who wouldn't want to live any place but here. <laughs> 
This tapestry, being dimensioned by a half hour of your time and the arbitrary limits of the city, has for its warp the avenues and for its weft the crosstown streets. The shuttle traveling back and forth, as you'd expect, between Grand Central and Times Square. As for loom, that's what ships do on the horizons of the city practically continuously, in which connection, God bless our Navy and the ships of the Merchant Marine, as well as the Port of New York Authority and sailors of the National Maritime Union, 346 West 17th Street. So much for shuttle, loom, and weft. Regarding individual threads, you will have to follow them by listening acutely. For there will be excursions and motifs, snatches of native song and speech, time signals, bulletins, reflections, and footsteps. To say nothing of the retirement of batters at first base, and of ballerinas from ballet at the age of 40. However, the main design is in the middle and will be clear enough when you stand back and see the whole. The people of the city are the main design. The names in the directories, but for the grace of whom the place becomes an empty mesa and a pincushion of stone, a petrified island of forgotten dividends and cobwebs in the elevator shafts. What that design is, you citizens of sister cities, you hearers on the plains and uplands, sit still and listen. It well may be a special hope, a pattern of felicity to you and to your kids, to fetuses conceived this month and next and ever after. That, as I say, comes later. But it's in the weave if you will stay and look it over with us in a certain light. They called me up, uh, gave me about six hours' notice. They called me and said, Would you go on the air with something on VJ? I did a 15 minute thing. In those days, one was very rich in, in the talent resources and I had no less than Orson Welles and Olivia de Havilland do that for me. Oh. That was called 14 August, which is published. It appears in the last of the three collections called Untitled and Other Dramas. When Japan surrendered after the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Norman Corwin was tabbed by CBS to produce a piece on the victory. Corwin cast Wells in the role of orator. father of great anniversaries. Men and saints shall picnic together on 14 August down more years than you or I shall see. 
So say it tonight with saluting guns. Say it with roses. Say it with a hand clasp, a drink, a prayer. Say it any way you want, but say it. Say it! Columbia Broadcasting System presents 14 August, a message for the day of victory by Norman Corwin, spoken by Orson Welles. Congratulations for being alive and listening on this night. Millions didn't make it. They died before their time, and they are gone and gone, for the fascists got them. They are not here, but their acts are here, and they are to be saluted from the lips and from the heart before the conversation swings around to reconversion. Fire a cannon to their everlasting memory. God and uranium were on our side. The wrath of the atom fell like a commandment, and the very planet quivered with implications. Tokyo Rose was hung over from the news next day, and the emperor prayed to himself for succor. So sound the guns for Achilles, the atom, and the war workers... Newton and Galileo, Curie and Einstein, the Archangel Gabriel, and the community of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Ladies and gentlemen, the peoples have come a long way. The next month on September 16th, Orson Welles began a 15-minute commentary series sponsored by Lear Radios on ABC. It was to combine Hollywood and Broadway news, along with social and political opinion. He'd have to tone down his radio work. Film had come calling once again. In spite of which, as you have heard on the radio tonight... part of the crime. But I'm already a part of it. Because I'm a part of you. In the fall of 1945, Wells began work on The Stranger, a film noir drama about a war crimes investigator who tracks a high-ranking Nazi fugitive to a New England town. Gee, Mr. Wilson, you must be wrong. Mary wouldn't fall in love with that kind of a man. Well, I hope I am wrong, Noah, but that's the way it is. People can't help who they fall in love with. Co-star Edward G. Robinson and Loretta Young. Wells hadn't directed a film since 1942. Producer Sam Spiegel gave him the chance to make a film on schedule and under budget. RKO even dangled the proposed four-picture deal for Wells if he was successful. You are a fool. When they find me, they'll know you're still here. But darling, you're on the verge of a breakdown. 
Nature, I could see you'd wind up killing yourself. Kill me, I want him. I couldn't face life knowing what I've been to you and what I've done to Noah. But when you kill me, don't touch me with your hand. Wells wanted to give the film a nightmarish tone. He filmed in long takes, and The Stranger was the first commercial film to use documentary footage from the Nazi concentration camps. It was completed one day ahead of schedule and under budget. But within weeks of completing the filming, RKO backed out of its promised deal. No reason was given, but the impression was left that the film wouldn't make money. The Stranger cost just over a million dollars to make. Fifteen months after its release, it had grossed more than three times that amount. It was the only film made by Wells to have been a bona fide box office success upon its release. <laughs> 